Good morning. Welcome again to Trinity Heights. My name is Stephen Chern. I'm one of the pastors here. So, happy anniversary. I can't believe that it's six years since we launched our public services. And I I just wanted to take a moment to reminisce, if that's okay. Will you indulge me for a moment while I just reminisce for a little bit? Um, Julia and I moved here uh, to the city about just almost coming up to eight years, eight years ago. And, and people have often asked what's, uh, what motivated you to come to New York City to, to plant a church? Why, why do that here? Um, and the honest answer is because we love it here and we always thought it would be a really great place to, to live. Um, and I know that there are, you know, you'll hear Christians say stuff like, don't say you don't want to go there. Don't say you don't like that place because that's where God is going to send you. And, and why God would want to make you thoroughly miserable by sending you somewhere that you really, really don't want to live, I have no idea. But uh, we've always loved it here, and actually what we've discovered over time is that it's actually a lot more fun living here uh, than it is just visiting here. That's, uh, that's at least been our experience. Um, but aside from our sort of natural draw to the city, we also noticed... Uh, some years ago, uh, but it's fairly acknowledged now, but some years ago that there were large swathes of people leaving the church in America. I mean, lots and lots of people were doing that, essentially doing, this generation's doing what my parents' generation did back in the UK, back in, back in, back in the day. Um, some of you have heard me say before, you know, the, the millennials and the Gen Zers, they're not leaving the church in, in England. Um, the Gen Xers, my generation, we never left the church in England. Uh, for the simple reason, we were never there, right? You have to be there to leave there, a certain kind of logic to that, right? So we were never there, didn't grow up in church. But um, my parents' generation, the baby boomers, they left this, that this, led this mass exodus, uh, exodus out, out of the, the church, and so they were part of that. And so I see what's going on here, and uh, I could sort of relate it to what went on back then with my parents' generation. And I think, interestingly enough, I think, for very similar reasons. Um, one of them is that I think that the church has, on a very large scale, communicated very, very badly. Now, it's not to say that there hasn't, hasn't been you know, all sorts of you know, cultural change and, and societal upheaval. That's sort of going on all the time. Sometimes it's more accentuated than others, but, but that's, that happens. But in the midst of that new situation... The church has communicated oftentimes very badly. And sometimes we've just communicated stuff that isn't even true. I mean, we've, we've done weird stuff. Like we've taken certain ideas and ideology, and we've taken certain political positions, and, and we've attached it to the gospel, to the good news of Jesus. And, and we've, made, we've elevated these things above everything else, and we've said this is the litmus test for, for faith. And guess what happens when you do that? People shrug their shoulders and go, well, I guess I don't belong here. And, and they leave, and they're out. That's how that, that works. Um, and so it's always been the ambition of Trinity Heights Church. You know, as we're, we're celebrating our sixth anniversary, I just want to remind us again, what, what, what is our ambition here? It's always been our ambition to go back to the beginning, to, to try to rediscover this ancient tradition, to... to look at this story that comes to us from great antiquity as it comes to us through the mists of time and and just to ask ourselves did 
Have we missed something here? Maybe, maybe we've ignored something. Maybe this story isn't about what we thought it was about. Maybe it's about something else. And can we together discover what that something else is? Now, I don't think that it would be a genuine and an authentic journey of discovery if, if this makeup of this congregation was 100% always died in the wall, straight down the line, Christians. I don't think it would be an authentic journey of rediscovery. So I was, I was thrilled when, when we were getting going six years ago that my friend Raf, who was an agnostic back then, and he's still an agnostic today. He came alongside me back then and said, hey, I'm going to help you get this church off the ground. We're gonna, we're gonna, and he kept, I'm not going to go through the litany of things that Raf did back then to help things get going and off the ground. But it was great having this agnostic friend say, I'm going to help you launch a church. At the same time, uh, one of our elders, Stuart Coles, I don't think you'll mind me sharing this. I think we we're on our way to, to set stuff up for one of our first services. And, and Stuart, one of the elders and leaders in church says, I'm going through a kind of existential crisis here, and I'm not even sure what I believe right now. <laughs> and so I like to tell friends, you know, this church got going with an agnostic on the one hand and the Christian going through an existential crisis on the other, and, and some Christians whose faith was in a very robust place. And all very important ingredients, but it's that interesting mix of people that has been the hallmark of Trinity Heights right from the beginning, before the pandemic, you know, when we were a bit larger, and and, uh, and it's been, and it, what I'm really thrilled about is that as we've emerged out of the pandemic and, and you know, we're, we're regrouping and getting going again, what's thrilling is that we're again in that place where, where that's a hallmark of what this congregation looks like, and it's that interesting mix of people, for me anyway, that 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 makes this such a fun community to, to be to be part of. Um, if you, if you just want to be with people who think exactly the same way you do, this probably is not going to be much fun, but, but this is, a, for those reasons, I think, a really uh, fun, fun place to, to be. And so with all of that in mind, everything I just, just said, um, what I want to do is kick off a new series as, as part of that attempt to rediscover the Christian narrative. Um, I want to go back to the very beginning. I want to go back to a time when the church didn't exist. I want to go back to a time when there were no disciples. I want to go back to a time where, where Christian religion was not even a recognized thing, where, where, there was, uh, where Christian spirituality had not yet arrived on the scene. And I want us to read those stories where Jesus calls his first, so he first appears and he calls his first disciples to come and follow him. And I want us to think about, in that context, spirituality. I want us to think about what would it mean for us to grow spiritually? What would it mean for us to become spiritually mature? Um, people often, I often hear people say, I'm, I'm not religious, but I am spiritual, and I'm not religious whatever that means, but I am spiritual. Okay, that's great. So let's, let's start with where everyone's comfortable. Let's start by talking about that spirituality. Um, and, and so we might think, well, Stephen, these are very short stories, these stories where Jesus calls his disciple. Very br- what could we possibly learn from these very brief encounters about Jesus' vision for spirituality? But what we're going to do is we're going to read these stories slowly. 
very slowly. And we're going to notice certain details. And we're going to ask certain questions. And as we do that, I think that these stories are going to disclose a tremendous amount of Jesus' vision for spiritual growth and what it might mean for us to be spiritually mature. So our, our reading this morning is taken from the Gospel of Matthew, and um, it, it's just a few verses from chapter 4, and it's starting at verse 18. Matthew says, As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, called Peter, and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. At once they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately, immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Strange. So, I want... Um, let, let's, let's start by trying to enter into the mindset of those first disciples. Um, I think we should remember that when Jesus appears to his, his, the, the disciples for the first time, he does not appear to them as God incarnate, right? He doesn't appear to them as the Christian paradox of fully God and yet fully human. He doesn't appear to them as the second person of the Trinity, the Son of the Father. Now, I'm not saying that he wasn't or isn't those things. I know some of you believe deeply that's exactly who Jesus is, and I know others here do not believe that at all. We're all in different places. I get that. But my point is, is that at that moment, um, they, they didn't have, the disciples didn't have, the would-be disciples didn't have any creed to check. They didn't have any formalized Christian doctrines to adhere to. These aren't the theological understandings they came to Jesus with. They did have their own theological understandings and questions which were merging with some of Israel's political ambitions at the time. Some of these questions they were already entertaining when they first started to hear about Jesus. Is he the Messiah? That's the kind of question that they would be asking at that time. Is he the Messiah, the one who's going to rescue us from the, the brutality of the Roman occupation? Maybe, perhaps. Or is, is, he, is he a messianic pretender? More than likely, thinks Nathaniel. Yeah, that's what Nathaniel, when Nathaniel first hears about Jesus, he's going, oh, there's another one, another messianic pretender. And, and, and then, and then is, he, is he going to be Israel's king who replaces the brutal King Herod? Oh, you'd be lucky. But all of that remained to be seen, and it may, remained to be verified. They didn't know. And none of that Christian scaffold that I mentioned earlier, the theological scaffold, hadn't grown up around Jesus yet. None of that was there. And so what I'm asking us to do is just to set all of that aside for the moment so that we can attempt to look at Jesus through the eyes of those first disciples at that first time Jesus appears to them. The one designation, and there was one designation that they all agreed on, the disciples. Actually, not just the disciples. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, his, his, his enemies, and, and everyone in between. And that title was Rabbi. Rabbi. Wasn't Son of God, wasn't Second Person of the Trinity, wasn't Messiah. None of them were applying those kinds of words, but Rabbi. And Rabbi means teacher. 
Actually, it's a bit more elevated than that. It actually means great one. Okay, so if you put those two together, what do you get? You get a great teacher, right? Teacher, great one, this great teacher. And, and this was just agreed on by, by everyone. Uh, he came across his disciples, the general audience. The rich who had everything, the poor had nothing, the Torah teachers, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, right? All of them agreed, yeah, we'll, give, we'll call him. We recognize him as a, a rabbi, as a, as a teacher, so when Jesus appears to the disciples for the first time, the one thing they're sure of is, okay, here comes a, a rabbi, a teacher, perhaps even a great teacher. Okay. It may be helpful to hear the invitation from this great teacher, and to hear it the way the disciples heard it, um, by placing this invitation in the context of the Jewish education system at the time. And uh, there, there were these... Um, Different schools. So first of all, there was Bet Sefer, the house of the book, from ages 5 to 10. Right? So this happened when you went to the, you'd go to the synagogue. It would be like going to school. You'd go to the synagogue, and you would learn to memorize the, the, first, uh, five, the first five books, uh, the, the Pentateuch, essentially, the first five books of the Bible, which is essentially something like that, right? So they'd memorize all, all, all of that part of the Bible, which is it's incredible. They'd, they'd have that. By the age of 10, a lot of them, not all of them, but a lot of them could do that, which just is amazing. So they, they memorize that, but then by age 10, they graduate out, and they end up going to, uh, you know, helping out in dad's business and, and, and helping out in, in the home and all of that. Then there was Beth Bet Talmud, the house of learning from ages 10 to 12. And what they would do is they would start to memorize, they start to memorize all the rest, the rest of this, right, which is, which is in, incredible. And they would actually start to um, le learn some of the oral traditions of, of sort of secondary literature, right, the, 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 secondary, the commentators, and they'd start to hear what different teachers and how they were interpreting, interpreting that. Interestingly enough, that is the, about the level of education that Jesus had reached when he went missing and they found him in the temple dazzling his elders. Do you remember that story? Do you remember that story? So Jesus' family had all gone in to, to celebrate the Passover in Jerusalem and, and then they're leaving Jerusalem in a convoy and they're thinking, okay, well, he's, Jesus is with his cousins or he's playing with the neighbor's kids or he's with aunt and uncle so-and-so. But a day goes by and another day goes by. And is, he, is he with you? No, he's not with you. He's not with me. I thought he was with you. No, he's not with me. He was meant, I think he was. And so they, they turn around. They're in a panic now. They turn around and they head back into Jerusalem to go and find him. And, and they eventually catch up with him in, in the temple. And, and Luke tells a story like this. He says, every year Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover. When he was 12 years old, they went up to the festival according to the custom after the festival was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. Thinking that he was in their company, they traveled on for a day, and they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. When they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. After three days, they found him in the temple court, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. Sometimes Christians think that what's going on there is that Jesus, because according to Christian doctrine, that, that Jesus is God incarnate, he is fully divine, 
fully God, therefore what he's doing is he's accessing, accessing the divine omniscience. He's accessing the, the divine knowledge. And so Jesus had all of his information available to him at his fingertips, whatever he felt like it. Very convenient. Um, a, a little bit like having Google before there was Google. You know, so if, if you and I went back then, we could sort of emulate this sort of effect. Uh, we just have to be like, hang on a second. Google says, I mean, God says, right? We'd have to do it like that. But I think that this sort of misses that other part of Christian doctrine, because Christian doctrine doesn't say Jesus is God. It also says that Jesus is fully human. And as a fully human being, as a fully-fledged human, he, he had to learn, he had to grow, and he had to, to mature as well. And uh, that, that is clear from what Luke says here. He says, and Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. So he had to grow, and he had to sure, and he had to, to learn. And so when we find him at the temple as a 12-year-old, dazzling his elders, right, when, when that's going on, right, when he's dazzling his elders as a 12-year-old boy, he, this is not accessing some divine search engine. This is not Jesus um, playing the game of, you know, we're going to test his encyclopedic knowledge. Ask me anything. Go on, just ask me anything. I'll give you the answer. Right? That's not what's happening. What we're witnessing is, is a, we're witnessing a, a brilliant student with that interesting mix of personal genius, hard work, and a very particular type of education. Beth Sefer, the house of the book, Beth Talmud, the house of learning, and then after 12 or 13, gifted students joined the Bet Midrash, which means the house of study, and what would happen is that a student would usually attach themselves to a, a rabbi, and they would continue their education, and as part of that, they would travel around the place and follow this rabbi wherever he but in order to enter into that level of education, to be able to enter into that, that school, um, you had to be the very best. You, you had to be the cream of the crop. You, you had to be on top of the game, top of the class, the very best of the best. So uh, about a year ago, or just over a year ago, I was, I was, so we were talking to a friend of the family back in, in the UK, and she had just... Um, graduated sixth form, uh, which is the equivalent of uh, high school here. And, and she's, you know, was always top of the class, brilliant at maths and, and the computer sciences. And so with these kids, you tend to encourage them to apply to Oxford or to apply to Cambridge. You can't apply to both. You can only apply to one or the other. That's one of the rules. And in order to apply to one or the other, you have to have your teachers uh, say so, a letter of recommendation, right? So um, he had that. So she's brilliant. She she really is. So she she she. Um, so one of the unique things of, of the the Oxbridge education system is that instead of instead of these kids going to to classes, going attending um, lectures, you don't go and sit. Go to these tutorials. That the whole schooling is done with these one-on-one -on -one tutorials where you read and write and discuss essays and and, and articles and, and that that sort of thing. The other, I think, quite unique thing is that if you can stay out of trouble, right, when, when, you've, when you've gone through your school and you graduate, if you can not go to prison for a few years after you, after you graduate, your bachelor's degree automatically converts into a master's degree. Um, so, so it's like the, our friend Chris Lawrence, he's a, he's a Cambridge grad, and so he's got this master's degree, but he only ever did the three years undergrad, but it just automatically converts. So he's a total cheat, right? Um, but but that's, that's how that works. So there's these different 
unique features of this Oxford Cambridge very elite sort of educa education. Unfortunately for our friend, as brilliant as she is, one of the exams didn't go quite how she had hoped. It, it just it didn't turn out the way she expected, and uh, it was hard for her. She's over it now. She's over. It. She's fine. But but at first it was really crushing. It was really hard to discover at that age when you're so competitive and the competition's so stiff to 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 discover. Well, maybe maybe I'm not the best of the very best in this particular field. And just as we have elementary school and high school before going to university, and depending on what grades get, you get depends on whether or not you advance to the next stage of education, so too people in Jesus' day would be filtered out of their educational system. Jesus' day, you didn't apply to Oxford, but if you were just brilliant, you did put your application into the local rabbi. So one day, James and John are there. They're mending their nets, right? They're preparing their nets with their father, and Jesus comes along, and he says, come and follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And they drop their nets, and they leave their fathers, and they follow him. And I tell you, I used to read those words and think, wow, why, why would they just drop everything and leave their fathers? Seems a little mysterious. You're in the middle of your work day, and you just suddenly just quit, right? Maybe some of you have done that. I don't know, but... but uh... But this is your dad, right? It's your dad's business. Had he hypnotized them? Was this sort of some mind control? They couldn't help themselves. The Pied Piper had come to town. Well, what, what is happening here? But no, there's no Jedi mind tricks involved. This isn't, this isn't manipulation. But when we consider that only the best of the best, those who could recite the entire Pentateuch, they would perhaps be considered. But these guys... They're not the best of the best. They didn't have a rabbi. That's why they're working for their dad. They've gone into dad's business. They're not academics or intellectuals. I'm not saying they didn't actually become brilliant writers who contributed to the world's greatest literature, but, but that not, not yet, not right now. So you see, this is the chance of a lifetime, an opportunity that's just too good to pass up. This is the equivalent of Oxford coming to you subverting the, the intellectual and spiritual hierarchies of the day. When Jesus comes to them, it's almost too good to be true. They're not asking him, can, can you be my rabbi? They're, he's asking them, will you be my, come and be my disciple? It's, it's turning everything on its head, turning everything upside down and back to front. Come, follow me. I remember uh, I, was, I was at this conference um, where there was this... It was a Christian conference, very different from the conference I was just at. I was the only Christian there. It was a Nietzsche conference, so everyone was an atheist, so you know, of course it's a Nietzsche conference. But this is a Christian conference, and there was this well-known Christian speaker. I'm not going to name him, because actually, even outside Christian circles, he'd be very well-known. Well You'd recognize the name. On this big, very influential organization. But, so I'm not going to name him, because I'm not here to bash people, but he talked about his hiring policy and who he hired. And he said, he said I only hire the best of the best. That's what he said. He said, I only, I only hire the people who've already proved themselves. I only hire, he said, I, this is a weird phrase, I only hire the thoroughbreds, right? I only hire the thoroughbreds. And, and I tell you, I was, I was really grateful that my friends and colleagues who I was attending this conference with just scoffed at that. They balked at that. And they said, oh, the thoroughbreds, you mean like Judas Iscariot who betrayed Jesus and, and uh, the, you know, Peter who denied Jesus, the thoroughbreds, like the rest of the disciples who completely abandoned and deserted Jesus, the thoroughbreds like that. You know, 
I always thought that we start to see Jesus overturn the social hierarchies when we read about Jesus going to the lepers, right? To the demon-possessed out in the graveyard, isolated. To the lepers out in the leper colony. To the dead girl beyond the grave. Those stories are often told together and in quick succession. On purpose. The gospel authors, the writers have arranged them on purpose like that as a way of saying, look what Jesus is doing. He, he's here turning everything upside down. He's turning it upside, undoing the societal norms. So whenever I read those stories, it seems very clear. Okay, Jesus brings in people on the margins of Israel society to the center. For, for the locked out, he opens the door. Jesus brings people in from the cold. But you know what I hadn't realized? was that Jesus had started doing that right before he'd even begun, really begun his public ministry, before he'd really done or said much. He'd already begun to do that right here as he calls his first disciples and he says, fishermen, you don't have a rabbi, I'll be a rabbi. Come, follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. The reason why they abandon everything without a second thought and the reason why their parents didn't try to hold them back, where are you going, son? They didn't do that. They didn't have to ask. Because this is the equivalent of the top universities approaching the high school dropout and offering them a place at Oxford or the Ivy League. Only, of course, the honor being conferred here is infinitely greater. Because it's not just a case of being given access and opportunity to the greatest education that money could buy, even though they didn't make the cut and were filtered out by the highly competitive education system. that's, That's not all that's going on here. The honor being conferred is infinitely greater because although they didn't know it at the time, here was according to Christian tradition, the incarnate word of God who had come, not just to teach them the law and the prophets. Do you remember Jesus said, he says, I've come to fulfill the law and the prophets. And do you remember what we said about that a few months back? We, We said that's Jewish shorthand for saying, I've come to fulfill God's purpose and plan for his creation and for humanity. I've come, that's what Jesus is saying when he says, I've come to fulfill the law and the prophets. And so here's the really amazing and I think beautiful thing. When Jesus invites his disciples to follow him, he's inviting them to fulfill the law and the prophets with him. He's saying, look, come and let us fulfill the plans and purposes of God together. And before we excuse ourselves, because we feel inadequate to the task, the plans and purposes of God, before we excuse ourselves because we feel inadequate to the task, consider the disciples. Yeah, that ragtag group of men I just mentioned just now. Disaster. Consider the Roman centurion, the enemy occupation soldier. Consider the tax collector. Consider the prostitute. Each one of them had been told, you cannot fulfill the plans and purposes of God for humanity, and you cannot fulfill the plan of purposes of God for humanity and you cannot fulfill the plan and purposes of God for humanity and these people had internalized that and they had felt the weight of that message for themselves and so I hope you can hear Jesus invitation fresh again this morning because Jesus looks at each one of them and their own particular brokenness just as he looks at us in ours and he says come follow me And let us fulfill the plans and purposes of God together. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we are um, grateful that you see us as we are. You see us in our own particular brand of brokenness and weakness. 
you see our failures and you see our successes and you come and give us that generous invitation to participate in your plans and purposes for all of creation and for all of humanity. And those plans and purposes are good and we're grateful that we get to be part of that. And I pray that anyone here this morning who has not felt that they could be part of that will perhaps for the first time feel that this is a call on their life too. In Jesus' name, amen.